In almost every city in Canada, housing is getting less and less affordable. That's not news. And if you're a millennial, it's probably been that way for your whole adult life. There's nothing vague about that. But how did it get so expensive? How come homes were so affordable decades ago and now they're not? I'm Gabe Friedman, and as part of a special series for first-time homebuyers, this Down to Business episode takes a look at real estate prices over a longer time horizon and tries to answer what's making houses so unaffordable these days. As always, the interviews are edited for clarity and brevity. We'll start with the facts and we'll go way back. So a generation squeeze when we're trying to understand what has been changing in our housing system, we like to go back to when baby boomers were young adults. So what did the housing system look like when they were starting out as young adults? And that kind of gives us a bit of a benchmark by which to compare how is it performing for young adults today. That's Paul Kershaw, a political scientist and director of the Masters of Public Health program at the University of British Columbia, where he founded a research lab called Generation Squeeze, which tries to understand why young people are having such a hard time affording, well, everything, but housing in particular. And to understand housing, he said, you have to look at baby boomers, the generation born between 1946 and 1964. They entered the housing market in the 1970s. And what I know from looking at the data back in the mid-1970s is that the typical young adult back then had to work five years of full-time work to save a 20% down payment on an average-priced home if they wanted to get into ownership. And that average-priced home was more often a house with a yard. It wasn't a big house, but it had ground access, et cetera, uh, by comparison with today, where the average in our cities is more often being shaped by you know, condos, apartments, et cetera. And so, you know, the mid-1970s, you had this sort of five years of full-time work. And that kind of persisted at the Canadian level until about the later 1980s. And it starts jumping up to six years, then seven years. And it kind of hollows out there in the early 1990s until you start getting to around the early 2000s. And you can see it start climbing to eight years. And by 2006, it was nine years. In 2007, 10 years. And it kind of levels there for a little bit. And then by 2012, it's 11 years. 2014, 12, 2015. 2016, 13 years. And if you flash forward now to 2020, it's gone from 15 to 17 years in 2021. I kind of thought that the pandemic just put this trend into turbo in a very serious way, but Kershaw was emphatic that this started way before then. And so there's this steady hiking up over time, and absolutely the rate at which it yet that skyrocketing hike has increased did accelerate in uh, the pandemic moment. But the pandemic moment is not all that unique. It's just, you know, one more large step on a 40 plus year journey where we as a country have tolerated home prices leaving local earnings behind. That has been great for those who were in the housing market some decades ago, myself included. Just last year alone, I was told my home went up by half a million dollars. I live in Metro Vancouver. Uh, so it's great at yielding wealth windfalls for people like me, but it crushes the way that hard work pays off for a younger demographic trying to enter the housing market or newcomers to our country of any age. And uh, when home ownership is pushed further and further out of reach for that demographic, their only opportunity is to compete for the available rentals. That additional competition dries up rent, which is a lousy consolation prize when home ownership is pushed out of reach. So I also asked him, like, doesn't it vary by province, by city? Oh, yeah. And it varies by province. And so, you know, in British Columbia, back in the mid-1970s, you know, to around 1980 or so, 
it still took just five years of full-time work for a typical young person to save a 20% down payment in this province, as it did in Metro Vancouver, for that matter. But you can see that in the early 1990s, there was more of an increase in British Columbia. We started getting used to higher uh, home prices in this region as uh, I think actually that was coinciding at the time when Hong Kong was transferring uh, from British rule back to Chinese rule. And uh, so then there was an influx of immigrants, in particular from Hong Kong, and that contributed, I think, in no small part to a rise in home prices at that time. And then it kind of stabled out. So that brought it up to around nine or 10 years in the early 90s, sort of stabled out there until the early 2000s. And you start seeing this just relentless march from 10, 2005 to 12, 2007 to 14, 2008 to 15. And then kind of hollows out there for a while. But then you get to 2015 and 16. It goes from like 16 years to 18 years. And now we're at uh, 22 years in British Columbia. Wow. I could tell you the same thing in Ontario. It'd be much more delayed. And what's so frightening is that over the last couple of years, Ontario has actually caught up to British Columbia. And indeed, the GTA, when thinking about home prices, is still slightly lower than Metro Vancouver. Um, but relative to the full-time earnings data for that region, it's showing that now the GTA has caught up to Metro Vancouver in terms of the level of unaffordability when thinking about the work involved in saving for a down payment. And that's basically the story. If you plot the average earnings for someone aged between 24 and 35 in Canada against the average home price, and you look back to the 70s, you will see affordability consistently declining. I still wondered whether home prices went straight up during that time, because what I really wanted to know is if anything has ever slowed or stalled the rise of home prices in a serious way over the last 40 years. I'm wondering when you look at like the average home price in Canada since the 1970s, is it just a straight line up? There is a little bit of a dip in the mid-1980s, uh, early 80s, as uh, interest rates really uh, took off in a, in a way that was much, much different than our current context. But from thereafter, it is a pretty consistent uh, march upwards there. You know, there are moments when it sort of flattens out on any hike, uh, you know, you get to a bit of a plateau. But it is a yeah, it's a pretty consistent pattern of going up over this time. And after the early 1980s, as interest rates started coming down, you have home prices uh, rising. I'm not saying that's causal, but that's a really key element of the chart that I'm looking at right now in terms of what's been happening. When you look at your data, what types of crashes have you seen in housing prices? Well, I'm going to look at Ontario specifically. So, you know, let's see, the average home price in Ontario in 2006 was 361000 then 380000 then 374 393 In 2010, it went up to 415 I'm not really seeing crashes. I'm seeing modest stalls. I guess after adjusting for inflation from 2007 to 2008, it went down by a whopping $6,000, the average price of a home. But now, I mean, look, like the average price in 2006 was 361000 In 2021 in Ontario, it is 872 That's for all of Ontario, not just the GTA. That's for all of Ontario. I didn't just know GTA is over a million now. It's all of Ontario. It's 872 But what about the plateaus? When did those happen? I asked him. They didn't know. So in the, um, let's see. So... After adjusting for inflation in the, in the late in 70s, you had home prices sort of low 200,000s. By the time 1982 and 83 and 84 came, they dropped down to about 180,000, 184,000, 182. So they went down by $25,000, $30,000, which on a $220,000, know, that's, a, that's a serious, a sizable percentage. 
I mean, the thing is, if a home went down, you know, in Ontario right now by $30,000, it would take you back a couple of months. If you're listening to this and wondering about interest rates, here's a little background. Interest rates on mortgages peaked in the early 1980s at over 21%, according to StatsCan. Today, the average rate is somewhere under 3%. So it's almost a totally different world in that sense. Yeah. So there is no one factor that drives housing. So when people are looking for a silver bullet, there is no silver bullet. There is silver buckshot. Uh, there's a range of things that one needs to do to try and like restore affordability forever. It is the case that when I'm looking at moments when home prices did dip, uh, you can tell like, you know, the early 1980s were a really interesting moment of that where we had a dramatic escalation in interest rates and that coincided with home prices going down which would have been hard uh, for the people who had bought in recently at that time, but it then definitely improved affordability for those who hadn't yet bought in. And that's going to be the tension that we are facing at this particular moment where we do have inflation levels that are being acknowledged to be worrisome, although I have to say, just as an aside, if only Statistics Canada were measuring housing inflation well, we would have known decades ago that we had a massive inflation problem in this country because, wait for it, our major cost of living has been soaring for decades. But now food prices and gas prices and other prices are also on the rise. And so you do have this renewed interest in raising interest rates and that it is likely to provide a counter to the relentless increase in home prices. Will it be enough of a counter to stall them? I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball to predict that. But it is the case that rising interest rates have at the systems level actually been good for trying to restore affordability because they slow down the degree to which people borrow more. And when people borrow more in our system, in our economy, they borrow more to buy real estate. And when you borrow more to buy real estate, you bid up the price. And so that's what we've been seeing. We bid up the price. The Bank of Canada says we don't have an inflation problem. They leave their interest rates low. People borrow more. They bid up the price. And it's this relentless cycle. So you just heard him say that there's no single policy that can make houses affordable again. But Paul was very anxious to give his sort of view of how we got here, who's to blame. So here it is. Here's what I'll say. I'll say that this isn't a policy issue. This is a cultural issue now. This is a, um, this is a political issue now. The system is such that it can continue to contribute to rising home prices, which, you know, many are pleased about. And I bet you when you interview people who are wanting to get into the housing market as owners now, and, you know, they talk about how hard it is. And that's right. You ask them, like, why, do you, why are you willing to take on such a large level of debt? And you're like, well, I, I want to be a homeowner that has a range of security. I want my kids to be close to this school. But I bet you they also think, yes, yeah, home prices are probably still going to rise. And we've kind of built that psyche into our system. And we don't have any willingness amongst the political leaders of any party stripe to say we're going to disrupt that. And then it becomes, uh, you know, a cultural force that we're willing to borrow more because we think it's going to pay off. And that is no small contributor to a broader housing system that does. Sure, it has some supply challenges, and we have a range of other kinds of harmful demand with foreign buyers, and we have large companies buying up rental, and we have NIMBYs, we have money launderers, there's a bunch of things. But there's polling data that shows young people, when they get into home ownership, they too are either hoping or at least expecting that their home is going to pay off better than other investments. And so this worries me a little bit because it's a younger demographic that knows more than any other age group how crushing the housing system has been to their ability to be hardworking young adults with hard work paying off in our young adult years. And we need to be the ones that say, 
no, we're not going to let this out-of-control problem persist for those who follow. But the polling does show that once you've gone from the struggle of getting into the housing market to being in there, you two have a lot of stake. I don't want the home prices to fall, in part because you probably have bigger mortgages than almost anyone. And so that then fuels this cultural hope that when the media talks about our housing market, they say it's healthy and hot when prices are rising. Sure, if wealth is our goal, but if affordability is, it's never healthy and hot when prices are rising. Unless earnings are skyrocketing, but we would need earnings to triple in Ontario uh, in order to bring housing you know, into some sort of affordable reach. Overnight, they would need to more than double to bring average Canadian home prices into reach for people starting out. Earnings aren't going to do that. Our employers can't afford that. So there's a disconnect now between the housing costs and ownership and our earnings. And that then just crowds out rental and just ups the competition and drives up rents. And it's just a lose-lose situation for so many starting out. And it's hard to argue with some of his points because the people I know who don't own yet, they're paying astronomical rents. But even the people I know who own a home, most of them would love to have a bigger home. They just can't afford it. So it's just a crazy situation. And it appears as though it's not going to change anytime soon without some serious world event. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. I tried to take on the next part of this with my other guest. And that next part is if you had 50,000 or 100,000 or 200,000 from an investment perspective, is real estate a smart place to put your money? Is buying a condo or a house in a major city where prices are already high historically a good investment? Uh, so good investment is a, it's a nuanced question, right? That was Todd Sinai. He's chair of the real estate department at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. And his research focuses on things like how parents' wealth influences children's housing decisions and timing the market and whether that's possible. Like if you bought a share of stock and that stock price went up as much as house prices have gone up, it would be a good investment. But why is it a good investment? It's because you could sell that stock or take the dividend and buy stuff that you wanted. And so it's worth more because you can buy more stuff, right? So basically, you can sell stock and buy stuff that you want with that money. But housing is trickier that way. If you buy a house and it goes up by you know 20%, well, you've still got the same house, right? You're living in it. <laughs> you're living in it. And in part of what you're doing now is that when you're living in a more expensive house is that you're still spending more on housing, right? Like the way you think about it is that if you buy a house for... 500,000 and it goes up in value to 600,000. The only way to buy more stuff is to actually sell that house, then you have nowhere to live. Yeah. And by the way, you know, what are you doing? Well, you're taking 600,000 that you could have invested somewhere and instead it's now just tied up in a house. So you're you're basically spending have more in housing, right? So so when house prices go up, you know, in essence, you're spending more in housing because you're 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 living in it, right? That's what you're using it for. So it becomes very different. And when people say, oh, I want to buy a house as an investment, that makes me really nervous. And it should make them really nervous, right? You buy a house because it is something that you are you are consuming that you're living in. I get what he's saying here. If your house goes up, you try to sell it, you're going to have to pay real estate agents, lawyers, all sorts of transactional fees, maybe movers. It's just expensive. And unless you move somewhere completely different, you're still stuck in the same housing market. But there's always a flip side. Having said that, if you happen to own a house in a period of rapidly rising prices, what ends up happening is your cost of ownership ends up being lower. 
think about it. Suppose house prices never went up. You just bought a $500,000 house. Yeah, how much would it cost you to live in that house? It'd be, well, what's the carrying cost of that house for a year? How much did my mortgage cost? How much maintenance, foregone investment? Because like I could have taken my $100,000 of equity and invested it and you know gotten a 5% yield or something like that. Like, yeah, there are, there are costs to like, tying up $500,000 in a house for, for however long. You know, If your house appreciates, then you get some of that back when you sell it, right? It's when you move, right? Whenever you leave, as long as you go to you know something that's less expensive, like a nursing home, so you're actually exiting the housing market, you know, it ends up being cheaper. And if you are on the flip side of that, which is you buy houses when they're expensive and you happen to move out at some point when you know they haven't appreciated because you bought the top of the market, well, then it turns out living in that house is going to have turned out to be very expensive for you. And the best evidence we have is that you simply cannot time that. I'm just going to repeat that. What he said was the best evidence shows people who try to time the market can't do it. Reasons may be obvious. You have to take into account interest rates. You have to take into account housing supply, population growth and demand, the economy, etc. It's just really complex. So Sinai, who has a PhD, says housing is not the best way to invest. But I also asked him what changed so much in the last 40 years that housing prices just went through the roof. You know, if you think about when your parents were buying houses, like there is there I mean, from from you know nineteen fifties through what like nineteen seventies, there's you know an exodus of people from cities to suburbs and then to the exurbs, right? Um, you go through these kind of decadal or multi-decadal trends where you know the exurbs have gotten too far away. Uh, the inner ring suburbs are relatively too new. Like what's right for redevelopment? It's the downtowns. What he just said was that in the 1950s, there was a huge exodus to a whole new class of housing right outside cities, aka the suburbs. And then when those filled up, new housing a little further away from the cities sprouted up, aka the exurbs. And when those filled up, people came back to cities, and that's where we are now. And he said these trends take place over decades. And the question in my mind is whether there's anything on the horizon that would suggest some change to break this pattern. You know, if you think there's a big secular shift away from cities, right? So if, you know, if a city becomes crime-ridden, we saw in the 1980s that scares people out of cities and that reduces property values. What about the pandemic? Pandemic's tricky, right? So like when people say pandemic and they mean people aren't going to go into the office. Yeah. You know, people are currently not going to the office, but they're definitely going to restaurants and hanging out with their friends. And like <laughs> the most efficient way to do that is in a city, right? So I think for, for decades, people have not gone to cities yeah. to work. They've gone to cities because that's where they want to be to live and live around people who are like them and have fun things to do. And the, the firms have followed their workers. Mm-hmm. So a world in which, you know, I'm not working in the office, I don't have to commute to the office. Instead, I'm just going to go like the WeWork across the street to get myself a cubicle so I don't have to sit in my apartment all day. So that's probably a pretty good thing for a city. It's it's bad for office buildings in cities, but it's good for cities. But but a, a world in which people can't be near other people, right, that they need to be isolated because because they're worried about pandemic, if that were a sticky outcome, then you you have a concern about cities, but I, I can't think of any country that you know in the post-industrial period that has had a sustained move away from people living in cities to going to the country. This is not like a little trend. This is just you know any developing country people people urbanize. Right. We're not going to deindustrialize and go back to the countryside. Yeah, exactly. Like that's just not in the cards. Well, hopes it's not right. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not I'm not particularly worried about that. 
then we start talking about, well, what happens around the fringes, right? So like, well, maybe, you know, we have, uh, you know, fewer people being in cities and more in suburbs. That stuff, that stuff is, you know, honestly, it's around the margins. It will, it will not like one of these cities is all of a sudden going to get a lot cheaper. It's just going to slow the rate of growth of the prices, right? So we are where we are and we add a little housing. The population grows a little. Prices go up. Some people move from Vancouver to Calgary or Toronto to Halifax or vice versa. Or maybe the suburbs get a little more expensive relative to the downtowns of cities. But Sinai didn't flag any major storms on the horizon that are going to change everything. And so that's where we are. And at the end of the day, I hope you learn two things from this podcast. One is that investing in real estate may not be the best investment, even though prices have been going up for years now, decades. And two, if you want anything to change, you have to advocate for new policies because that's what it comes down to. And that's it. That's the show today, the second in our series on buying a home. Thanks for listening. And we'll return with more about the housing market soon. By the way, you may have noticed some changes on Down to Business. We're using more guests, and we released a bonus episode last week about the government's plan to cut emissions by 40% by 2030. If you haven't listened to it, you can find it wherever you got this podcast, and you should watch out for more bonus episodes about breaking news in the future. Until then, thanks for your support, and thanks to the team behind Down to Business, including Bryce Hall, who composed and performed the original music and produced this show, and to Pamela Heaven, Victoria Wells, and Noella Ovid for their web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. Until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.